Well, it is a delight and joy to be with you here this morning. Kind of like Joseph, it's interesting how I got here. Um, well, obviously I drove here, but uh, uh, how I got to be here in interaction with your pastor, uh, Oliver. Um, uh, a number of weeks ago, he sent me a, a message on Messenger, and I don't use Messenger, uh, but it's on my phone. Uh, got the app, and uh, just uh, one, uh, one day, it just popped up that you have a message from Oliver Jones. And uh, it's interesting, I found there's about another 12 messages I had not looked at because they don't pop up. So for some reason, Oliver's popped up on my screen. So I uh, checked uh, Messenger, and uh, he, he asked, he said, I'm, I'm going on vacation, and I'm having a hard time finding someone to preach on August 7th. So he knew that um, I had a home here in, uh, in Hayden, and uh, kids and daughters and grandchildren, which is the draw to come, obviously back home on a regular basis. And he said, I just, it's just a shot in the dark, but would you happen to be in Hayden August 7th? And I, uh, I didn't, I actually, I, uh, I guess I did have to do Messenger, because I didn't have his uh, uh, phone number or, uh, or email at that point, because I told him, if you ever want to get me in the future, but send me, yeah, either the text message or send me an email, because I never check Messenger. Um, and uh, so he, uh, um, we, we, we made contact and uh, talked on the phone. And I said, well, yep, just happened to be it. I'll be in Hayden. And yes, I'm free on, on August 7th. And so that's how I'm here. So I just responded to Messenger. And so you got me. All right. And of course, Oliver was a delightful student. And I don't tell student, I don't tell stories on students, and they don't tell stories on me, and that's a wonderful arrangement that we have. So Oliver was a wonderful student. If you ask, ask me any questions about him, I'll just say he's a wonderful student. All right, that was, and um, that way when he comes back, he won't uh, say anything about uh, me as a uh, as a teacher. Well, it is a joy to be with you uh, this morning. That's how I got here. And, um, and I asked Oliver, uh, what would you like me to preach on? He said anything, which is a dangerous uh, statement to make to a Bible professor. Um, so I said, well, what have you been preaching on? He told me he had just completed uh, going through Ephesians. I said, well, how about a little bit of the Old Testament? He said, that would be fine. I said, how about my favorite book? Now, listen, my favorite book is Ezra Nehemiah. And you say, how come you got two? Because Ezra Nehemiah was originally written as one book. So my favorite book is in the Old Testament is the book of Ezra Nehemiah. I said, it's my favorite. Can I preach something from my favorite book? He said, go ahead. And so I decided to preach on Nehemiah chapter 9. And uh, we're going to look at this chapter. I'm going to actually read it as we go through the, the message and bring out some highlights as I do. Uh, a famous expositor of a previous generation. Now, one of my favorite expositors of a previous generation was G. Campbell Morgan, very interesting man. Uh, he was British, uh, so am I, actually. I was born in UK, I was born in England. And uh, Campbell Morgan was uh, born a couple of counties over from where I was born and grew up till I was 10 when I came to the United States. And um, so, of course, I have an affinity for anything English including G. Campbell Morgan. And uh, he had a very interesting life. He never went to seminary. Um, so I can't take any, you know, um, uh, ben uh, any, uh, uh, well, I, I, can't, I can't say that he was seminary and so everybody should go to seminary. He's one of those unique men, individuals, who uh, was self-trained. And uh, 
became a great Bible expositor, interestingly, uh, from uh, Great Britain for a number of years, came and was a Bible teacher at Biola, what was now Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles in very early years, lived in Glendale, California. And of course, we moved to Redondo Beach, California, which is just 30 miles or so from Glendale. In fact, when I go to teach at TMS, I go on the freeway through Glendale. And I always think about, I wonder where G. Campbell Morgan lived. You know, he, and, and then he went back and uh, pastored Westminster Chapel, which is just uh, half a mile away from Buckingham Palace in London. And in 1939, he brought an associate pastor to help him preach the Sunday evening services. He did a Sunday morning, and a young man was the preacher on Sunday night, and his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. So for about uh, six years, they had a ministry together, and then uh, uh, G. Campbell Morgan stepped aside, and of course, the rest is history as far as Lloyd-Jones and his ministry at Westminster Chapel. All of that to say that uh, toward the end of his ministry, he wrote a book, a collection of, of, of messages that he had given, and the book was called The Great Chapters of the Bible. And he began with Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 22, Exodus 12, Exodus 20 and on, and and went from Genesis to Revelation and gave messages on the great chapters of the Bible. Now, I love G. Campbell Morgan, but he missed one. He missed Nehemiah chapter 9, which is one of the great chapters of the Bible. In fact, I like to say Nehemiah is one of the great chapters of the Bible that nobody knows. But you should. If you're reading through the Old Testament, Nehemiah 9 gives you a wonderful summation of the lessons that you are to learn as you are reading the history that is recorded in the Old Testament. So take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. And as you're turning, let me give you a little bit of background to help us uh, appreciate. This is going to concentrate upon the response of the people of Israel to their hearing of Scripture. Now, this group is in what we call post-exilic Israel. They are the are the descendants of those who came after the collapse of Babylon to the Persians. And King Cyrus allowed the Israelites to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to reestablish themselves in the land that they had lost the northern kingdom to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom, the area around Jerusalem, in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians. And uh, so for close to 50 years, uh, uh, the land was sparse and barren. Actually, Gentiles filtered in and, and uh, came into the land, but uh, the Israelites were in exile. And then Cyrus issues a decree, this is where the book of Ezra begins, that allows them to go back and build the temple, which they do. But they only have a building. That's Ezra chapters 1 to 6. The building is built. But you need more than just a building because the temple was the place where God was to be worshipped, where offerings were to be brought and praise was to be sung to the Lord, and the people were to be instructed. So you have a building, but that doesn't complete God's restoration project. A couple of generations later, he sends Ezra, and King Artaxerxes gives a decree that he can go and reestablish the, 
the, the offerings and the teaching of the law, Torah, to the Israelites that were in Jerusalem and the, the province of Yehud, which was basically Judah, a Persian province. But the Israelites were in sin, and so as you get to the end of the book of, well, the book of, the portion of Ezra, of Ezra and Nehemiah, the, uh, uh, the teaching has not yet taken place. The teacher has returned, but there's no teaching. And then you have to fast forward ahead, the background given in Ezra chapter 4, that along with teaching, they need security of the city so that priests and Levites can move back in Jerusalem because they're the ones that are the officiants as far as the offerings and the Levites are the singers who lead Israel in their worship of God. And so if you're going to have uh, an offerings taking place in the temple and praise, you need to have some priests and Levites living in Jerusalem. Why does anybody want to live in Jerusalem? Because the walls were broken down. There's no security. So everybody's coming to the temple, but no one is living around the temple. They need the security of the walls. That's where the Nehemiah portion of the book begins, where God allows Nehemiah uh, to have an interaction with King Artaxerxes that, uh, because he finds out that the people are discouraged because... The walls are broken down and the gates are burned. There's no security. And so uh, Nehemiah, who was one of the king's counselors, a cupbearer, uh, is allowed to go back and lead the people. Now, the people, about three months before Nehemiah chapter 9, are completely discouraged. Uh, they, they don't see any hope whatsoever. Um, they come to Jerusalem and it's, it's just... just, just just here's the temple and kind of rubble all around it. And so they're discouraged. They're disheartened. They, I think you could say, they, they really don't think that God is taking much notice of them. And then all of a sudden, Nehemiah shows up with the decree from the king and uh, some military help as well, basically to say, God has allowed me to come so that you, together with me, can rebuild this wall and provide for security that will allow Jerusalem to be inhabited again. And so with this discouraged group, in 52 days, the wall is completed. Not without some, some tensions along the way that are in Nehemiah chapters uh, 2 through 6, but in the end, the wall is completed and the opponents of the Israelites, the Gentiles in the land, they're now the ones discouraged and Israel is very encouraged because they have seen what the Lord has done. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, just uh, less than a week after the wall is completed, it's the beginning of the seventh month. That is when Israel had the sounding of the trumpets to call the people to uh, Jerusalem for worship. And on that day, the people themselves, you can read it in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, call upon Ezra to read the Torah to them. And he had already trained some Levites, and so as they gathered in assembly at the water gate, those of you who are old enough, Nixon, Watergate, all right, this is the original Watergate, because it's the gate in Jerusalem, obviously, that the water came in, probably toward the, uh, the, the southern end of the city, but there was a large area there, and, and men, women, and children all gathered and for six hours, Ezra read from the Torah with the Levites giving the sense, the interpretation of what the people were hearing. For six hours. And I like to say at that point, never say your pastor preaches too long. So 
text was read, and they stood and listened for six hours. And of course, they were convicted of their sin as they heard Genesis through Deuteronomy being read, particularly the portion of of, uh, the law that was given at Sinai. And they realized, of course, how great was their sin. It's going to be part of what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 9. But for, for six hours, and they're weeping, and Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites say, this is not a day for weeping. This is a day of assembly. This is a day of rejoicing. Uh, they, the, the grief and the sorrow, the confession of sin is going to come later. Well, not recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8 is uh, the Day of Atonement, which took place on the 10th of the month. Since they were faithful to obey now what was in the Torah, they must have had it that year. But that's where Israel just basically watched as the high priest, you know, brought the offering into the most holy place for Israel's atonement. And of course, that's when you have the other goat where the sins of Israel were, were confessed by the high priest on the head of the goat that was led, led straight into the wilderness. And the concept of the taking away of sin and, and, and Israel's forgiveness. But that was, that was not the people's confession. They were, just, they were just looking at what was being done for them. God wants more than that. He wants personal involvement. Now, obviously, the involvement on the Day of Atonement is you put your faith in what the high priest is doing for you. In fact, we're going to have communion in a few minutes, and we're going to put our faith in what the high priest, our high priest, has done for us. You don't do anything. You just, by faith, rest in what has been done for you. That's what Israel had on the Day of Atonement. They just rested and what the high priest was doing on their behalf. But it takes more than just resting in what someone else has done. There must be a personal response. That is where Nehemiah 9 is going to come in. Now between the Day of Atonement, we find in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 18, the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is another joyous celebration. And for three hours, for seven days, each morning, the people would hear again the Torah being read and explained to them. And this is all backdrop, and so as we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, we come to the 24th day of the seventh month. Now what had transpired on the first day, Israel knowing they needed to personally confess the sins of their fathers and their sins to the Lord, this is what's going to take place on the 24th day. And so we come to Nehemiah chapter 9. This very encouraged people of God who have seen God work in a marvelous way in the previous three months. Hearts now sensitive to Him that have spent basically three weeks being saturated with the Word of God, hearing it over and over and over again. Now in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see their response. And the chapter is their prayer of confession. Israel's prayer of confession. Through verse 5, the first part of verse 5, we see the context of the people's prayer of confession. And then beginning in the latter part of verse 5 through uh, verse 37, we see the content of the people's prayer 
of confession. The context and the content. Obviously, like Scripture, we're going to look more at the content than the context, but we want to begin where the Scripture begins. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, with the context. Let me read through the the first part of verse uh, verse 5. Now, on the 24th day of this month, that's the seventh month that had begun with the narrative in Nehemiah 8.1, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assemble with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants, or better, the seed of Israel, separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. That's three hours. That was the 12 hours of daylight. They read from the book of the law of the God, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now the Levite, on the, now on the Levite's platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and uh, Chennai. Probably not one of the names you want to give to your children. But they, were, they were the Levites. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then... Five of the Levites, joined by uh, a couple of others, uh, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Cherubiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Well, in the context, we see first, in the first three verses, the actions of the people. What did they do? But more importantly, what did what they do reflect what they were thinking, their attitude? Behind every action, there is an attitude. Well, verse 1, they assemble with fasting, sackcloth, and dirt upon themselves. This is humility, but a humility based upon the fact of their recognition of their sinfulness, of their waywardness. The only required fast in Israel was on the Day of Atonement when they were afflicted for their sins. Sackcloth, dirt or earth that would be put upon them would be reflective of the calamity, the calamity that they would see come upon them because of their disobedience. And so they are humble before God. And let's face it, confession is going to come after God humbles his people because of their sin. They're the seed of Israel. They are, seed would reflect upon the covenant made with Abraham. And so they separate themselves from foreigners. God had given Israel the land, as we're going to find out, Uh, to the seed of Abraham, the seed of Israel. And so they separate from and turn to standing and confessing their sins and the antiquity of their fathers. So there's a separation from the things, the influences of the world and a turning to the Lord in confession and worship. And you might say, and I've heard this says so sometimes we, we, we get a little too much Bible. Well, it's very interesting. This group of people, the Israelites that have been just immersed in Scripture on the 24th day take another three hours and take the initiative to themselves read 
the scriptures. One thing to have the scripture read to you is another thing to desire to read the scripture for yourself. And so they're not only humble and separate from the world and confessing their sin and worshiping, but they also take time to refresh their minds by hearing the scripture again, which leads to another three hours of confession and worship directed to the Lord. And so we see through the actions, the attitudes of the people, they, they are humble and their focus is upon the Lord. Hearing scripture, confessing their sins, and, and uh, worshiping the greatness of their God. And then in verses 4, in the first part of 5, we see the actions of the Levites. In verse 4, notice, as the people are responding with their actions, the Levites are crying with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And in the Old Testament, this means a crying out, that is praying to the Lord, which would also include both adoration of God, confession of sin, and a, a, a petition that God would be all in all to them. It was the Levites that led Israel in the singing of the Psalms that we now have in Scripture. They would lead Israel in that singing. So you could read the whole book of Psalms. You get the idea of what the Levites were doing. They were praying to the Lord, but also 1 Chronicles 16 reminds us that the Levites were also not only to cry out to the Lord themselves, but also lead Israel in their prayers to the Lord. And that's exactly what we see introduced in verse 5. We have these Levites saying to the people, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. By the way, this is the only place in the Old Testament where Israel is called to bless the Lord forever and ever. On into time as far as we can see it. It's to be a continual practice on the part of of the people. So the, the prayer that now comes, yes, the Levites, they are, they are speaking this prayer. But Israel, just like with the Psalms, is joining in and singing. It's kind of like what we have here. You know, we have a couple of singers that are singing because they're leading us to sing along with them. And that's what's taking place. And so the Levites are singing, but leading the people in their prayer of confession. And then we see the, uh, the contents of the people's prayer of confession. And that's the major part of the chapter. Beginning with the last part of verse 5, and as I said, going all the way to the end in verse 37. It's a very interesting prayer. It begins with the exuberance of praise to the Lord. It begins on a high note. It ends on the expression of lament. It goes from delight in God to despair over the people's situation. From the heights to the depths. It begins with creation. We've already sung about creation this morning. But it ends in slavery. It goes from a transcendent creator to the implied need of an imminent Savior as the prayer comes to an end. 
creator to savior. The prayer is consumed with the worship of God and the confession of the people's sin. Very apropos for a morning when we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. A reminder of the greatness of God and in humility coming before him realizing we're a sinful people. We don't deserve anything. But we have a great and gracious God. And that's going to be the great theme of this prayer. Now, um, just so you can know the basic theme, look real quickly at verse 33. We'll see it in context in just a few moments. But this is, if we put it this way, this is the summarization of everything that's in this prayer. When Israel says, however, you, that is the Lord, our God, you are just in all that has come upon us. Why? For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. God, we, we hear the, the Scripture, we reflect upon it, and we realize you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness. But we have acted wickedly. To your faithfulness, we see our great faithlessness. You're faithful, we're not. By the way, I have taught Old Testament in class for 25 years and online for more years than that, virtually. And that's a great summation of Old Testament history. The Lord was faithful and Israel wasn't. Just put that on the whole Old Testament and you got it down. There it is, right here. These people saturated in the Old Testament for so many years, or for so many days. You're faithful. We're not. Now, very, very quickly, let's go through the contents of the prayer. It begins with the invocation. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. This is the invocation as the prayer begins. As we go through the prayer, the Lord is going to be praised. His name stands for his existence and his character. And his name is glorious. It is heavy. It is weighty. And may his name be that which is blessed, which is exalted above all human praise and blessing. We should worship no man. God is the one who should receive all blessing and praise and exaltation from his people. And that's exactly as they start to recite the Lord's previous actions in verses 6 to 31, that's exactly where they begin. Having invoked the fact that they need to Bless and praise the name of the Lord. Notice in verse 6, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. And notice how verse 7, You are the Lord God. So notice verse 6, You alone are the Lord. Verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from her of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of Canaan, of the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Gergesite, 
They give it to his seed. And you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. They see here two fundamental foundational actions of the Lord in their past. And really, we have in verses 6 through 8 a summation of what is in what we call Genesis. Now, the first portion of the Torah. But Genesis 1 to 11 is about God the Creator and what happened to His creation. Genesis 12 to 50 is about the covenant that God made with Abraham and after him renewed it to Isaac and to Jacob and Joseph is sent to Egypt to bring deliverance of the seed of, of uh, Abraham. It's all tied in. That whole narrative is tied in with the covenant, the promise, the oath that God has sworn to Abraham to give his seed the land. And he has every right to give him the land. Why? Because he's the creator of the highest heavens and all of the lands and the sea. Back to Genesis chapter 1, the lands would be the dry lands, the seas, because remember in the days of creation that uh, God created the heavens and the earth and then the earth, the dry land was separated from the seas. God and God not only created, but created everything that is in them. And so it all belongs to the Lord by means of creation. And he chose Abram and entered into a covenant with him to give his seed a particular land, the land of the Canaanites. But of course, as you're reading in Genesis and into Exodus, Israel found themselves the seed of Abraham, the seed of Israel, Jacob, in Egypt, and so God had to deliver them. And so we see in verses 9 to 31 the formative actions of the Lord and Israel's response in the past. These actions of the Lord toward Israel based upon the, his creation and the covenant that he has made with Abraham. That's foundational to understand what God does in Israel's history. And this is all in the past. This is what God has done. And uh, let me just read for you quickly verses 9 to 21. Here are the uh, actions of the exodus from Egypt and its aftermath and what God did for Israel in Israel's response. You saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and the people of his land. For you knew they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled in the depths like a stone in the raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day. And with a pillar of fire by night to light the way for them, the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from the rock for them for their thirst. And you took them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give to them. But they acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a 
calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. Now, hopefully you heard you and they. And there's a pattern here. The gracious actions of the Lord, verses 9 to 15, bringing them out of Egypt by his strong hand because Pharaoh acted arrogantly, presumptuously. And then God provided. He gave them light. He gave them law. He gave them manna. He gave them water. He gave, he gave, he gave, he gave. But the reaction of the people was rebellion. 16 in the first part of verse 17 and again in verse 18. But their rebellion was met by the response of the Lord. And the importance of uh, the end of verse 17, a echoing of what is in Exodus 32, verses 4 to 8, where God appeared to Moses and declared his name, that he was a God of forgiveness, graciousness, and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. This is mentioned half a dozen times in different contexts of the Old Testament. This is the fundamental nature of our God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, patient, abounding in loyalty. A God who forgives those who will respond in confession to him. And even when his, his gracious compassion was met with even more blasphemy, more idolatry, God still taught them, led them, fed them, even gave his spirit to instruct them. God only abounded in more provision to them. Well, that's the, the exodus from Egypt and its aftermath, the wilderness. Verses 22 to 31 then turn to the conquest and its aftermath. And again, listen. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them to them as a boundary. That is, you allotted the nations to them as a boundary. And they took possession of the land of Sion and the king of Eshbon and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars. You brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land and you subdued them before them, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hands with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with as they desired. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses full of good things, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, food, trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you cast your law behind their backs, killed your prophets who had admonished them so they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies, just as they had done in the wilderness. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. And when they cried to you in times of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. 
But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments but sinned against your ordinances by which a man shall observe and live by them. They turned the stubborn shoulder, stiffened their neck, and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years, admonished them by your spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give here. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of their lands. Exactly what God had predicted in the book of Deuteronomy, the latter part of the Torah, is exactly what happened in Israel's history of the land. Notice the same pattern. The activity of, of uh, Yahweh, his actions, he gave the people the land. He gave the Canaanites into their hands. The reaction of the people, rebellion. Verse 26, 28, and 29, and yet the response of the Lord is more compassion. A compassion that even when they were taken in exile, they did not come to an end as a people. And so Israel reflects upon their past and sees a God of compassion, the fathers who were rebellious. And now we come to the present. Verses 32 to 37. The only petition, the only prayer, verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. We might be back in the land, but we're still under the authority of the Gentiles. Would you take notice of that? And, of course, they're appealing on the basis of God's continued compassion. The corporate confession, verses 33 to 35, we've seen. However, you're just in all that's come upon us. You've dealt faithfully, we've acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. We confess. Our circumstances are the result of our own sinful actions. So, Lord, verses 36 and 37, hear our lament. Behold, we're slaves today. And as the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of his fruit and bounty, behold, we're slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They also rule our bodies and rule over our cattle as they please. So we're in great distress. We're back in the land, but the land is not ours. We're back in the land, but the bounty of the land goes to our masters. We're slaves. And God, we deserve it. But you're a gracious God, a compassionate God, a giving God. And with that, the prayer comes to an end. And God will be gracious. By chapter 12, they will reestablish the worship in uh, the temple. And everything seems to be glorious. But in chapter 13, they'll become just as disobedient as the fathers who had gone before them. And so the book of Ezra and Nehemiah will end with Nehemiah saying, Remember me, O God, for good. I still believe you're going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenants. You're going to give Israel a new heart. You're going to give us the land. We'll be your people here. We'll be no longer slaves. And when that happens, remember me. And we have a gracious, compassionate, merciful God who does remember his people. He is faithful. We are not. 
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts of love. We sing that song. The words are true. We rest in a faithful God. Great is your faithfulness. And we have an added benefit because we live this side of the cross. We know that God in his compassion and his mercy and his pity upon sinners has heard the lament of sinful people and sent a Savior. And we rest in what he did upon the cross our forgiveness. That's communion. But then before communion, we have to personalize it. Is there any sin that needs to be confessed? We're going to rest in what our high priest did for us. But that doesn't take away the fact that we need personally, just like Israel, to confess our waywardness appeal as they did to the God of mercy, the God of whose mercy is seen as unmerited favors, grace that we remember as we have the bread and the cup. So let's rest in our high priest while we are quick to confess our disobedience, our unfaithfulness to our faithful God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Father, may we too be humbled as we recognize the depth of our sinfulness, just as Israel was humbled as they reflected upon the depth of their sinfulness. Father, may we separate from a sinful world and may we embrace a faithful God. May we confess our sins and worship you. May we always give ourselves to the reading and hearing of Scripture, which reminds us of who you are, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God ready to forgive, slow to anger, compassionate. May we rest in the reality of who our God is. Father, as we come to communion, we thank you for our great high priest who paid the price for our sin that we might experience the forgiveness of our compassionate, faithful, gracious God. And Father, might our response be one of continual confession of our sin and renewal of our commitment to love and serve you through our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.